I was just thinking about how much I like to come here. How I look forward to Sunday mornings. I really do, Vince, long to be here on a Sunday morning. This is the highlight of my week. There's no place I would rather be than here with my brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ, worshiping our great God and Savior together. It is it is an experience unlike any other. From time to time, we take vacations like all the rest of you. We'll go off somewhere and go see something or whatever. And I have a love-hate relationship with vacations. There's that sense when you're tired and you, you need to be away. And so, you know, you look forward to vacation. You, you love to have a vacation. But I have this hate relationship with it as well. And that is, after a couple of days of being away, I'm like sick and tired of being away. I miss my own bed. I want to be home where it's comfortable and familiar and, and knowable. I want the food my wife cooks. I'm tired of eating restaurant food. There's just, there's just a sense of longing to want to be home. And, and probably more than anything, if, if being away takes us out of here on a Sunday, I miss being with all of you. I just long to be home. In the 11th chapter of Hebrews, it talks about Abraham having left his home in Ur of the Chaldees and having been sent out by God to a place where he didn't really know where he was going. And, and it says there that Abraham went in faith and he was looking for a city whose foundations the architect and builder was God. He had that before his eyes. That was ultimately his home. And that's really what, by the grace of God, I've been trying to accomplish here among us in these last months, is to move towards the topic really that's before us today, this morning. It, it began last week, it, it's this week and it'll continue, but it's, it's the topic of the kingdom of God, the great millennial kingdom of Christ, our home. Our home. And what I really want to accomplish, both in my own life and in your lives, is, as we unfold the Scripture together, is I want to create a longing in our hearts, a, a godly longing, a biblically driven longing for not this world and the things of this world, which cannot satisfy, but for that which is coming, our inheritance, our promise in, secured in Christ. That's what I'm looking to do. Beloved, as we, as we begin to really think on these things, it's going to change us. It's going to change us. This kingdom of Christ is a radically different kingdom from anything we know. It is outside of our human experience. We see little glimpses, little snippets of it here in this life, but, but they're only a, a veiled and vague picture. It's it's like looking through the shower door that's covered in fog because of the steam of a hot shower. You kind of can see, but not well. What I want to do, what I'm hoping to do, is to clear aside the fog and give us a really clear picture of what's coming. 
Because as we get a hold of the revolutionary characteristics of this coming reign of Jesus Christ, it is going to change the way we view both this life and the life to come. It's going to come alive. It's going to come alive. We began last week looking at the first of those revolutionary characteristics. And we noted that it had to do with fruitfulness in life. We, we said the first revolutionary characteristic of the coming kingdom of Christ is that life will be fruitful. Fruitful. And we observed how unfruitful this present life is. How often this present life frustrates us. We observed a number of characteristics that point out that fruitfulness. We noted last time that in the kingdom to come, life will be fruitful spiritually. Do you remember that? It's going to be spiritually fruitful. And we said that spiritual fruitfulness will demonstrate itself in, in the fact that holiness and righteousness will become commonplace. Wow. Wow commonplace. The prophet Zechariah says that holiness will become like a fry pan in everybody's home. That's how common it will be. How different that is than, than what you and I know. Isn't that true? How obscure and difficult to come by is holiness today? We noted as well that, that the life and the kingdom to come is going to be fruitful politically. Politically fruitful. And what we meant by that is that the Bible clearly says that war will cease. And I don't know about you, but I'm tired of war. I'm sick and tired of the death and devastation of warfare. Incessant warfare. I cannot turn on the news. I cannot open the Internet to read. I cannot open a, mag a news magazine, a newspaper without news of war. I'm tired. I'm tired of people killing each other all the time. We noted as well that life will be fruitful economically. Economically. That is, the Bible says that when Christ returns to establish His kingdom, the curse that you and I live under is going to be lifted. It's going to be lifted. All the effort, all the work that you and I put into every day and every week that so often frustrates us will then bring about great productivity. Great productivity. We noted as well that the absence of war will free an incredible level of resources if for no other reason the productivity will shoot up. How much we squander blowing stuff up, huh? Life's going to be fruitful. Fruitful. The fourth way life will be fruitful is that it will be fruitful educationally. Educationally. Now, let me insert just a parenthetical thought here. I prepared a, a chart of the resurrection timeline. Remember last week? I told you I should have done it last week and I didn't. I did do it this week. It's not in your bulletin, so don't look there. 
One of the other consequences, the curses, we have to cut down so many trees to make paper that we throw away. So there's a limited supply of them on the back on the sound booth. So if you want a resurrection timeline, go get one back there after the service. If we run out, we'll print more. But I did put today's message into your bulletin. It is there for you. Okay? Parentheses ended. Educationally, life is going to become fruitful. And I'm excited about that. I'm excited about that. You know, the fall of Rome in AD 476, Europe descended into what historians used to call the Dark Ages. We have a new name for it now, but I still like the Dark Ages. Because I think it's descriptive of what happened in Europe with the fall of the Roman Empire. Civilization was plunged into this time of superstition and ignorance. It ruled the day. For a thousand years, Europe was trapped in this spiritual darkness and bondage. But beloved, it was the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ as recovered in the Reformation that stripped the blinders off and began to bring light again to the people. But here we are in our day. Here we are in our day. And again, the world is gripped in darkness and blindness. Billions of people on this planet are trapped in spiritual darkness. They are enslaved to Satan and to his lies. Billions lie in the grip of the evil one. But when Christ returns, He is going to imprison Satan, the father of lies. And he will be unable to continue to deceive the nations. The reign of the king, the one who is the very enthronement of truth, will strip away the blackness, the darkness, the deception that lies like a blanket on this planet. And once again, people will see and know the truth. Well, beloved, that's something the Old Testament prophets looked forward to. It was something they longed for. It was something they wrote about. By inspiration of the Spirit of God, they were able to peer into the future to Messiah's reign, and they described what they saw, and they described His reign as a time of unhindered knowledge and instruction in the way of the Lord. Open your Bible to Isaiah chapter 2. Let's listen to these prophets this morning. Isaiah chapter 2. If you're using a pew Bible, page 685. Isaiah chapter 2, verses 2 and 3. Isaiah 2, 2 and 3. Now it will come about that in the last days... The mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains and will be raised above the hills and all the nations will stream to it. And many peoples will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us concerning his ways, that we may walk in his paths. For the Lord will the law will go forth from Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. The nations will stream to the capital city of Messiah that they might hear and know of the Lord. 
A little to the right in chapter 11 and verse 9, the prophet continues to describe those days and he says, speaking of Messiah's time, that they will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Oh, we are so far from that day. So far from that day. The knowledge of the Lord is not covering this earth. The knowledge of the Lord is scarce on this planet. And thus, God's people have work to do. We continue to preach the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And, but no matter how much effort we put into it, beloved, we will never successfully bring it to the ends of the earth until Christ Himself returns. He alone will spread His knowledge. You know, I was thinking about the educational system in this country. What a sad state of affairs. According to some research I did, and it was quick research, but according to what I was able to find for the year 2009, the combined federal, state, and local governmental expenditures on education is estimated to be $905 billion. Next year, there's going to be a a rather large increase, and it's actually anticipated to exceed $1 trillion next year, the year 2010. You remember what I told you a trillion dollars looked like? It was four by four pallets stacked seven feet high, 2.2 acres worth of them, all in hundred dollar bills. That's what we're going to spend in this country next year on education. The state of California alone is expected to spend $8,500 per student in the year 2009. And yet virtually everyone will admit The system is broken. We're not getting our money's worth. It's messed up. Lack of parental discipline leads to a lack of classroom discipline. Lazy students refusing to learn. We have some teachers who are incompetent. We have others who are lazy in the system. There is corruption galore built into this system. There is fundamentally an anti-God curriculum that lies at the base of it all. It is no wonder that we spend money and achieve poor results. This is the world you and I live in. This is our reality now. But someday when Messiah returns, He is going to turn this thing on its head and again, or rather for the first time, knowledge will extend across this planet as He had originally intended. Beloved, listen to me. Listen to me. It is a devilish deception that convinces people that you can be truly educated when at the base of your education lies a denial of the creator, sustainer, and sovereign God of this universe. As long as that is the basis of the educational system of this world, we will produce fools. And that's what we're producing. Fools. The psalmist says in Psalm 36 and in verse 9, in your light we see light. That is, when we see things the way, Lord, you describe them to be, then we see them truly. And not until. Only until we understand things as God has made them. And as God has intended them to operate, do we truly understand what they are. 
All those who deny this fact, listen to me, all those who deny this fact fall under the condemnation of the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 1 and in verse 22, professing to be wise, they became fools. They became fools. We live in a foolish world. But someday when Christ returns, when Christ returns, then the knowledge of the Lord will cover the earth as the oceans cover the sea. And I'm looking forward to that time. Life will be fruitful educationally. Life is also going to be fruitful physically. Physically. Do you know one of the strongest longings of the human heart is to be healthy? It's to be healthy. Every single week, we receive in the church office multiple requests from people to please pray for either them or their loved ones who are suffering from some kind of illness or injury. It is, it is dependable. It is reliable. Please pray for so-and-so, and then there'll be some sort of medical diagnosis. It is very near and very dear and very close to the human heart. Our whole national debate with regard to health care points out how desperate we are for physical wholeness in this country and in this world. Life is not fruitful from a physical point of view. It's broken. And we all know it. We all know it. You know, one of the things that characterized the three-year public ministry of Jesus Christ, that which supported his repeated public claim to be Messiah, was his widespread healing miracles. Isn't that true? It was the healing miracles of Jesus Christ. Everywhere he went, he, he healed people. Go to the New Testament with me. Just be reminded of this. Matthew chapter 4, verse 23, page 960. I want you to see something here. Maybe you maybe you've thought of this before and maybe you have never really considered it. Matthew chapter four. Verses 23 and following page 960. And Jesus was going about in all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. And the news about him went out into all Syria and they brought to him all who were ill, taken with various diseases and pains, demoniacs, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them. And great multitudes followed him from Galilee and Decapolis and Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. And I bet they did. How far would you go to be healed? How far would you journey to take your loved one? To be healed. Beloved, the text indicates to me that Jesus effectively banished disease from Galilee for a period of a year or more. How do I, why do I say that? Because I know something about human nature, and that is if there was a man who could heal you, nothing would stop you from going there. And so what does it say? Great multitudes followed him. You bet they did. And heal them all, it says. Heal them all. Why? 
because he was giving them a glimpse of the kingdom that's coming. In fact, John the Baptist, after being arrested, was having a personal crisis of faith. He was the one who was the forerunner. He was the one who who said, prepare the way, right? Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And now John has been imprisoned. And the ministry of Jesus doesn't seem to be going the way John's looking for it to go. And he's having a personal crisis of faith. And so he sends his disciples to Jesus and he said, are you the one? Did I miss something here? Are you the one? You remember what Jesus says? He says, go back and report to John. You tell him this, Luke chapter 7, verses 22, 23. Go and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight and the lame walk. The lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up. The poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who keeps from stumbling over me. Go tell John that I'm healing disease everywhere and for everyone. What kind of answer is that? Well, for one who is steeped in the Old Testament scriptures, it is the exact right answer for the question of, are you the one? Back to Isaiah again. Isaiah chapter 35, page 716. Isaiah 35, page 716. Jesus' response to John the Baptist was in full keeping with how the Old Testament prophets described Messiah's coming kingdom. Verses 5 and 6, Isaiah 35. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened, and the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. Then the lame will leap like a deer, and the tongue of the dung will shout for joy, for waters will break forth in the wilderness and streams in the Arabah, or the desert. The eyes of the blind open, the ears of the deaf unstop, the lame leak like a deer. Those who can't speak shout for joy. Are you the one? Take a look. Just look around you. Beloved, this is a characteristic of Messiah's kingdom. Healing. Freedom from disease and deformity. The very things that... that wrench our hearts. There's a coming kingdom when this will be no more. The millennial kingdom disease will be banished. Banished! Those who enter into Messiah's kingdom in the non-glorified bodies, and we spoke of that, and when we spoke of the various resurrections, check your resurrection timeline. Those who enter in in human bodies, redeemed, but still in physical bodies like you and I, will no longer be subject to the ravages of disease. No more children's hospitals. No more children's hospitals. No more diseases that bend and twist and deform the human shape. No more mental retardation. No more birth defects. No more diseases that take hundreds of thousands of people's lives 
every year. No more cancer, beloved. No more heart disease. And on and on and on. Gone. Gone. Go to the right over to Isaiah 65. The prophet speaks again of this coming kingdom, beginning in verse 20, page 748, Isaiah 65, and beginning in verse 20. No longer will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not live out his days, for the youth will die at the age of 100, and the one who does not reach the age of 100 shall be thought accursed. And they shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall also plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For as the lifetime of a tree, so shall be the days of my people. And my chosen ones will wear out the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity. For they are the offspring of those blessed by the Lord and their descendants with them. And it will come to pass that before they call, I will answer. And while they are still speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb will graze together and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. And the dust shall be the serpent's food. And they shall do no evil or harm in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. Wow. Will death be entirely banished in the millennium? No. No. But it will be severely restricted. Ages will once again extend. How far? I don't know. But the metaphors here, talking about the age of a tree, speaks of great age. Wearing out the work of your hands, that is, building something and living longer than it does. Those who died at the age of 100 thought accursed. Accursed. Those who enter into this great millennial kingdom in their non-glorified bodies will bear children, will experience long life. The diseases that come upon you and I will be stripped back. It will be time of great physical fruitfulness. And I don't know about you, but I'm looking forward to being there. I'm tired of attending funerals. I'm tired of going to the hospital and seeing people bent and twisted by disease. I'm tired of these things. Are you tired? Are you tired too? The first revolutionary characteristic of the reign of Christ is that life will be, life will be fruitful. Second, Life will be fruitful. Secondly, government will be righteous. Government will be righteous. Wow. Human government, beloved, is the creation of God. It is the creation of God, and it derives its legitimacy from Him. The first government was instituted by God following the flood, and it was a means by by which God designed to hold back human wickedness and evil. Genesis chapter 9. 
God vested in human government the authority to judicially take human life. And in the biblical reasoning of the Scriptures, when God grants to the government the ability to judicially take human life through capital punishment, He has as well given to them all the other lesser powers necessary in order to preserve peace and ensure tranquility among people. It's an argument from the greater to the lesser. If the government can kill someone, can execute someone, then they can do everything else up to that point. That is necessary to ensure peace and tranquility among the inhabitants of this earth. God has invented government. It is his idea. He has established it. And its purpose is peace and tranquility. The holding back of wickedness. But this creates a tension with government. A tension between what I call freedom and justice. Freedom and justice. Biblically, they're twin responsibilities of government. Let me just try to briefly develop this with you. I use the word justice to, as shorthand to speak about all the laws and bureaucracy that govern a society and protect it from anarchy and self-destruction. Justice. That, that embodies that whole system of lawmaking and law enforcement. The bureaucracy that runs things. That's one function of the government. But there is this competing tension out there between what I call freedom. Freedom. Freedom embodies the needs and rights of individuals within that society to fulfill their God-given mandate to subdue the earth. To subdue the earth. So we have these two forces in tension. To the individual, God has given a requirement that they are to subdue the earth. That is, that they are to exercise freedom in the subduing of that earth and the ruling over it. And at the same time, there is justice, which is laws and bureaucracies that restrict the freedom of the individual. And these two exist in tension. All governments struggle with this tension between these two competing ideas. Through the millennia, various forms of government have ruled over mankind from sole dictatorships to egalitarian democracies. And each form of government has its relative advantages and strengths, to be sure. There is no one perfect form. Furthermore, because of the inherent wickedness of humanity and rebellion towards God, God, in Genesis chapter 11, effectively blocked the ability of humanity to organize themselves into one government. Praise God. The largest executioner of the people of this planet has been their own governments. The most oppression, the most The most barbarous actions have come not in war. They have come at the hands of people's own governments. When God confused languages at the Tower of Babel, He sealed off the ability for a one-world government to rule. And that's a blessing. That's a blessing. When Antichrist appears on the scene, though, When he appears on the scene, that wicked monster, what's the first thing he's going to go after? 
He's going to seek to establish a one world government with him at the head. And that government that he puts together will be the most barbaric, the most deadly, the most wicked force this world has ever known. It'll only be the return of Jesus Christ and the establishment of his kingdom that will smash the kingdom of the Antichrist and bring in Messiah's rule. Kingdom of Messiah, though, will be a perfect blend, a perfect balance. Justice and freedom. Justice and freedom. Let me show this to you. Develop these ideas. Let me show it to you. Justice first. Let's talk about justice in Messiah's kingdom. From long ago, the prophets foretold the glories of the coming king. The one who would come from the line of David, he would rule the world from his capital city in Jerusalem. The prophet Zechariah, chapter 14, verse 9, he says, The Lord will be king over all the earth. In that day, the Lord will be the only one and his name the only one. Back to Isaiah, chapter 2. Page 685, Isaiah, chapter 2. It'll come about in the last days. Many people will come and say, verse 3, Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. That He may teach us concerning His ways, that we may walk in His paths. For the law will go forth from Zion, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between the nations, and He will render decisions for many peoples. This worldwide kingdom. A worldwide kingdom. Chapter 9 of Isaiah's prophecy. The one that appears on all your Christmas cards. Chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. For our, a child will be born to un, unto us. A son will be given to us. And the government will rest on his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. And there will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace and on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Messiah's government will be a government characterized by righteousness. By justice. It will be a worldwide government. Go to the right to Isaiah 42. Page 724. Isaiah 42, verse 1. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry out or raise his voice, nor make his voice heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break. A dimly burning wick he will not extinguish. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not be disheartened or crushed until he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands will wait expectantly for his law. Messiah is going to establish justice in this earth. All the oppression, all the wickedness, he's going to put it down. You will have a kingdom characterized by justice, ruled by one who is righteous. And this one's a scary thought for some. Back to chapter 11, 
Verse 3, page 694. Messiah, verse 3, will delight in the fear of the Lord. And here it is. Listen to this. He will not judge by what his eyes see, nor make a decision by what his ears hear. Just let that sink in on your heart a moment. The best we can do, the best we can do in terms of a legal system in this world is to judge based on external testimony. Evidence that we gather and collect. The one thing we cannot do is see the motive of the human heart. We do not know why someone does what they do. We cannot tell. And therefore, we cannot render punishment that is absolutely fitting to the crime. But Messiah can. Messiah can. Messiah can look right down into their heart. He knows exactly what they've done and why they've done it. And thus, when punishment is meted out by him, it will exactly and perfectly fit the offense. Never too harsh, never too lenient. Exactly what is necessary. Wow. That punishment, by the way, beloved, that punishment, according to verse 4, is up to and including the death penalty. You see that? But with righteousness he will judge the poor. And decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. And with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Messiah, punishment in Messiah's kingdom is up to and including the death penalty. But not one person will be executed who does not deserve it. Does not deserve it. And not one will escape. And not one will escape. I think about justice in Messiah's kingdom and I can't help but be reminded of what the Proverbs say. Proverbs chapter 20, verse 8. A king who sits on the throne of justice disperses all evil with his eyes, the proverb says. When the king sits on the throne of justice, he just has to look and the evil flee. Or Ecclesiastes chapter 8 and verse 11. When the sentence for a crime is not quickly carried out, the hearts of the people are filled with schemes to do wrong. Our own experience testifies to this. We have prisons overloaded with people when justice is being delayed for years on end. Beloved, when Messiah comes and sets up his kingdom, it's going to include a bureaucracy. I know that's a dirty word for us, bureaucracy, right? The one thing we don't like is bureaucracy. That's because the only bureaucracies that you and I know are the fallen sinful kind. And they're so loaded with inefficiencies and incompetencies and red tape that it frustrates us and drives us crazy. But every kingdom must have a bureaucracy for that is how the law is carried out. That is how it is worked out at the individual levels. There has to be a bureaucracy and there will be one in Messiah's kingdom. But contrary to the bureaucracies that you and I know, Isaiah chapter 32 and in verse 1 describes a very different one. 
page 713. The prophet says, Behold, a king will reign righteously and princes will rule justly. To reign and to rule. These are terms of government. These are the, the idea of, of governing people, of not only just making law, but carrying out law, giving direction to the citizens. Not so much the concept of what you and I think of as the black-robed individual who sits on the bench and renders some verdict. This is more along the idea of the elders of Old Testament Israel. You remember them? They are spoken of as ones who rule within the nation. They are the ones who, who listen to the people's problems and give direction in their lives. The prophet says that here within Messiah's kingdom, the king will reign righteously. He will rule righteously and his princes will rule justly. That means when you go to the government, you're going to get a good, fair deal. Who are these princes? Who are these judges? Glad you asked. I'm glad you asked. They are all those who by faith have set their, set their lives to follow Messiah. They are the people of God through the ages. They are the Old Testament saints, according to the prophet Daniel, chapter 12 and verse 3, where he says that those who have lived the a life of spiritual wisdom leading others to the one true God will shine like the stars. They are like they are the 12 apostles, according to Luke 22, will sit in judgment over the 12 tribes of Israel. They are the tribulation martyrs, according to Revelation chapter 20 and verse 4, who will be resurrected at the beginning of Messiah's kingdom to reign with him. And beloved, they are you and me. They're the Christians who the scriptures say we will reign with Christ. Second Timothy chapter two, verse 12. If we endure, we shall also what reign with him. We shall reign with him. And what will our reign look like? First Corinthians chapter six. First Corinthians chapter six, page eleven, forty four. Paul gives us just a glimpse of what it looks like. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 2, Or do you not know, Corinthians, that the saints, that is the people of God, will judge the world? We will judge the world. Or verse 3, do you not know? Listen to this. Or do you not know we will judge angels? Angels. We have been made a little lower than the angels for a time, but we are going to rule over the angelic realm. Ruling over the angelic realm. Not the fallen demonic realm, the realm of the holy angels. We're going to reign and rule with Christ. So what are you going to be doing in the millennium? Maybe you're going to be the Upland or the mayor of Upland. How's that grab you? Not the Upland like we know it today. All messed up with sin. But Upland in Messiah's kingdom. 
you may end up being the mayor of Upland. You know, Jesus says that faithful in little things in this life yields greater responsibilities in the next. Did you know that? Faithful in little things now yield greater responsibility in the next. Messiah's kingdom is going to stretch across this earth. There's going to be a bureaucracy that has to be to govern. And we as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, we're going to have places in that bureaucracy. Twelve apostles sit on, on thrones judging the twelve tribes, but you and me, we're, we're, we're judging other things. We're figuring out how to get water to North Upland. But it'll be a whole lot easier in Messiah's kingdom than it is today. I don't want to leave this, so we're going to finish it. Freedom. Freedom. Because freedom has to be balanced against justice. This is an important concept for us. You know, biblically, when we talk about freedom, we need to be careful to define our terms. We need to be very careful to define our terms. In America, we have freedom of religion. Is that correct? We are free from governmental intervention. That is that we can believe anything we want or nothing at all. And that is the way it ought to be. In this fallen world, the last thing we want is a government telling us what we must believe and what we cannot believe. History is blood red with people who insist upon a certain prescribed set of doctrines or creeds whether it be the Taliban or the magisterial reformers. In this fallen world, the combination of ecclesiastical and civil government together in one thing, where unbelief becomes a civil crime, is a deadly scourge. And it is only the grace of God that we live in a country in which these two things have been pried apart. And many, many died to make that happen. So here in America, we have a freedom to believe or not believe. And that's good. But here's where it gets interesting. Listen to me now. God never, ever grants anyone the freedom to disbelieve. It's okay in America to believe whatever you want about God or nothing at all. But it's not okay with God. It's not okay with God. Ancient Israel was what's called a theocracy. A theocracy. That means that God is king over the nation. And as you read the Old Testament, what you come to understand is within God's kingdom there of a theocracy, with God as king, religious and civil responsibilities are intertwined. To violate a religious requirement becomes a civil crime punishable by various... Consequences. That was the nation of Israel. Well, guess what? Guess what? When Messiah comes, he's going to establish his kingdom and it is going to be a theocracy. A theocracy. Once again, unbelief becomes a crime. Biblically speaking, freedom... Freedom is not the right to sin. It is not the right to sin. Freedom is the absence of oppression. 
And the unhindered opportunity to glorify God by exercising dominion over his creation as he has originally given us to do. That is what it means to be free. That's what it means to be free. Freedom biblically includes the idea of peace and safety. That an individual has not to cower in fear, has nothing to fear from either his government or outside sources. That's freedom. It's not freedom to sin. not freedom to do whatever you want. It's freedom from outside oppression. It's freedom to carry out the creation mandate. Now this notion is somewhat abstract. But let me show you from an Old Testament prophet where it becomes very concrete. Very, very concrete. I want to turn you to the prophet Micah. The prophet Micah. Micah chapter 4, page 926. Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah. What? There we go. All right. Told you, Jeremy, that's how I got through my ordination exam. Micah, chapter 4. Let's just begin it in verse 1. And it will come about in the last days that the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains. It will be raised above the hills and all the peoples will stream to it. And many nations will come and say, Come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us about his ways, that we may walk in his paths. For from Zion will go forth the law, even the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And he will judge between many nations and render decisions for mighty distant nations. Then they will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation, never again will they train for war and verse four and each of them will sit under his vine and under his fig tree with no one to make them afraid for the mouth of the lord of hosts has spoken underline that in your bible each of them will sit under his vine under his fig tree Where does the abstract concept of biblical freedom, that is, the mandate to to carry out the original design of God, Genesis chapter 1, it becomes concrete in the place of private ownership of property. Private ownership of property. He will sit under his vine. And under his fig tree, the right of private ownership carries with it the ability to build, the ability to invest, the ability to manage something and to enjoy the fruit and profit thereof or suffer the consequences of your own failure. This is fundamental, beloved, to Messiah's kingdom. Private Ownership of property. It is God's guarantee to us. It is God's design for both the world and His kingdom. Now, there are limits 
to private ownership of property. It is not a sovereign freedom over the creation. It is a a freedom of stewardship. That is that God is the one who owns the creation and he has granted a stewardship to mankind. As the psalmist says, the earth is the Lord's and all it contains. But he has granted to us a stewardship and that stewardship embodies private ownership of property. And with that private ownership, the ability to manage it well or poorly. This is freedom. That is fundamental core. This is what it means to be free. And this directly contradicts all those Marxist voices out there. All those Marxist voices out there that are seeking to pervert the scriptures and support their own totalitarian and utopian dream for a society in which the common ownership, the state management of everything will alleviate the ills of the earth. Nothing could be further from the truth. Nothing could be further from the truth. Beloved, this is not just some American notion. It is woven into the very constitution of this country because it is derived from the scriptures. It comes from the mind of God himself. It's an old joke. Rolls around from the time of the Soviet Union. It goes something like this. They pretend to pay us and we pretend to work. Just let that one sink in on you. They pretend to pay us and we pretend to work. People ask me, what's life going to be like in the millennium? Work. Soul satisfying, God glorifying, productive work. That's what it's going to be like. God created us to do what? To work. To work, to exercise dominion over his creation, to rule over it, to subdue it. Beloved, in the millennial kingdom, sin is going to be restricted. The results of the fall are going to be rolled back. Work is going to become again that for which God had originally created. It is going to satisfy the deepest longing of our soul. It is going to give glory to the God of the creation. And I believe there's going to be such a renaissance of human activity that will burst forth that this world cannot even imagine. Art, science, music, mathematics, literature, engineering, agriculture, government, every place you turn will burst forth with glory for God. Wow. I'm longing for home. I am longing for home. Let me ask you a question. Are you longing to? Do you long for it? How about you? Are you longing for it? Are you longing for home? Are you satisfied with what's right here now? Oh, beloved. Listen to me. Let the Spirit of God take the Word of God and wash your mind. Begin to see things as God determines they should be. Don't find your satisfaction here. Don't look for it here. You can't get it. 
start longing for home. Let's pray. Oh Lord, may you use your scriptures. May you use your scriptures to transform us, to change us. Lord God, we, we get our eyes off of you and we get them down here into the mud and into the horizontal and we get overwhelmed with the circumstances of life and we're trying to squeeze some satisfaction out of this dreary existence plagued with sin. And now, Lord, it's a frustration. Father, give us a fresh vision of heaven. Give us a vision of the kingdom to come. And let that transform what we do here and now. Not that we would go out and, and leave all and sit on the side of a hill and hum until you return. But Lord God, let us be busy. Let us be productive. Let us be about the Father's business. Yet at the same time, let us stop trying to find satisfaction in this life. And let us long for the next. For the people of God through the ages. We pray, Maranatha, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen.